We'll be reading from Malachi chapter 2, verses 10 through 17. It's titled, Judah Profaned the Covenant. Verse 10. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless, and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hands. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit, and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife, but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit, and do not be faithless. You have wearied the Lord with your words. But you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. We've got a good one this weekend. I'm glad you're here. Father, heart of God has been our current teaching series. We're working our way through the book of Malachi. Be faithful to him is the title of this weekend's message. Be faithful to him. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Malachi chapter 2. And we're looking at, we'll be focused primarily on verses 10 through 12. And then next week we'll cover 13 through 17. Also grab your sermon notes out and you can follow along. Here's the question, it's on the top of your sermon notes. Why does the topic of marriage show up so early in the book of Genesis? Within the first two chapters you see this. Why does it show up so early in the book of Genesis? Here's the answer. Because as the marriage goes, so goes the family, and as the family goes, so goes society. How, how is our society going? Is it going well? It all goes back to marriage relationship. It goes back to the marriage relationship. So as the family, as the marriage goes, so goes the family. And as the family goes, so goes society. Satan's assault on the institution of marriage shouldn't surprise us. We see that all around us in our culture throughout the world. The Bible says that marriage is to be a lifelong monogamous relationship between a man and a woman who are Christians, who are committed to Christ. Um, Genesis 2, 24 through 25 is where he gives us the definition of, of marriage. God does. This is, he's the originator of it, and so he gives us the definition of it. 
And he says, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh, and the man and the woman were naked and felt no shame. And so, uh, oftentimes people will argue that. I've had people argue with me over that and says, no, no, okay, they might say that at the beginning, but... But Jesus never talked about that. Jesus never established that as kind of the foundational definition of marriage. And actually, he did. I put that on your notes. It's in Matthew 19, 4 through 6. He was very clear about that. He's making reference to the, the origin, the original statement. That's what marriage is, and that uh, defines marriage relationship. And uh, by the way, if Jesus is who he said he is, he, if he's God in the flesh who died and, uh, in our place for our sins and then resurrected to conquer sin and death, it just makes good sense that you would bow down to him and follow him in all of your ways. Anything other than that is just flat out folly. And, uh, and so... That's important. Let me give you a little background of this study. God's people have returned to the promised land from Babylonian captivity, but things are not going very well, and their disillusionment has led them to spiritual apathy, bitterness, and cynicism. You see their attitude in response to God throughout this book. And so Malachi is calling them back to covenant to covenant love of God, to the covenant love of God. So the overarching theme of this uh, series has been if you only knew the Father heart of God for you, it would change everything. You would, you would love him in response. That was week one. You would worship him. That was week two. Last week we talked about listening to him. You would listen to him. And now we come to this uh, idea of that you would be faithful to him. So here's, here's the context. God's people were showing their unfaithfulness and testing God's patience through their mate selection. You'll see that. You probably saw that in the text, through their mate selection. They were being unequally yoked. How many are familiar with that statement when I say unequally yoked? Sounds like an old-fashioned statement. It's a biblical statement, and that's what they were doing here. And not only were they being unequally yoked, but uh, they had a lack of marriage commitment. They were divorcing. So we'll talk about marriage and divorce next week, but this week we're gonna talk about um, this idea of, of being um, unequally yoked. So here's the two questions we're dealing with here this weekend. Why is being unequally yoked a big problem? And... Um, why should you, uh, what should you look for in a spouse? Those are the two questions we're looking at. I think this text helps us with that. So, so uh, why is being unequally yoked a big problem and what should you look for in a spouse? Now you might be thinking right now, it's like, why did I show up this morning? I don't need this. I've already been married. I'm not gonna get married ever, ever again. I've tried that, it didn't work out so well, and I'm never gonna date. That's crazy. Well, guess what? As a believer in Jesus Christ, you need to hear this because you need to be a source of wise counsel to your family and friends who are pursuing this. And you need to know what God's standards are for their flourishing, for your family and friends flourishing in this area of their life. 
Now, this is gonna be a bit hard hitting. I just wanna forewarn you because uh, what God says is so contrary to what we currently see in our culture today. And so you're gonna experience some conviction. I'm gonna challenge you. I'm gonna probably get in your face a bit. Actually, I'm gonna let the Bible get in our face a bit because that's what he's doing here. And so let me just remind you that God doesn't convict us. He doesn't convict us to shame us. He convicts us to save us and to satisfy us. So anytime you feel troubled over what you've done or who you are or any of those things, that's an invitation to run into his arms because he has something better for you. You're on a path that's no doubt probably destructive, is destructive, sin is destructive. And he's trying to bring you to that path of of flourishing in him. And so another thing I want you to keep in mind too is that no matter what you're going through, there is no sin or suffering, there's no sin or suffering that is a match for God's redeeming and restoring grace. So we talk about these matters because there are, there's hope in Jesus. Though we feel convicted, but he's telling us in that conviction, I have something better for you. I love you. I have your best, I have your best in mind here. So you, that's, that's kind of the foundation you need to keep in mind. He, he loves us. He wants the very best for us. And no sin or suffering is a match for his redeeming and restoring grace. So they were unfaithful to God and testing his patience by being unequally yoked. That's your first fill in the blank on your notes there. And so um, by being unequally yoked. 2 Corinthians 6.14 kind of talks about that, gives us kind of the definition in the New Testament. It's up on the screen there. It says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers for what partnership? That's an interesting word. Partnership is, is the word koinonia, intimacy, closeness. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? So this applies uh, not just to marriage, but it applies to uh, business partnerships. You have to be very careful with that in uh, and it can also uh, apply to, you can be unequally yoked, both be Christians and one be more mature than the other. That can create an unequally yoked, you guys know what a yoke is, it was what was harnessing around oxen as they would pull the plow. And so you got, to, you got a, maybe a weaker oxen than the other or whatever it might be and so it becomes this, uh, a lot of confusion, a lot of chaos, a lot of problems here. Now, why is being unequally yoked a big problem? When verses 10 through 12, God uses very, very strong language. And it's because God cares about the spouse you select. Our relationship with God determines our selection of a spouse. And so whether you are young or old, you need to hear this. And I, and I emphasize that for old because I've seen old people after they've gone through, after 20 years of marriage or 30 years of marriage, they go either through a divorce or the death of their spouse, they get back into the dating game and it's like, did you not learn anything from the first time? I've, I've actually had my own relatives do some really crazy stuff that created a lot of heartache 
in their life because they think, oh, that's just for the young people. I know what I'm doing here. Well, no, you don't, okay? And um, you need to listen to what God's word says. And so this applies to both young and old. It's very important. Let me reread verses 10 through 12. Listen to what he says. Have we not all one father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves. Now, this is it. This is the big idea. And has married the daughter of a foreign god, unequally yoked. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. So, from these verses, these three verses, 10, 11, 12, uh, let's, let's look at this. To marry whoever you want is to, what he's saying here, is to disdain God's character. That's the first, first thought. It is to disdain God's character. That's verse 10. Have we not all one father? Has not one God created us? So the idea here is that God created you, therefore you, you belong to him, but not only has he created you, but he has redeemed you. He's your father, and even more so do you belong to him. You owe your life to him is what he's establishing with those statements. Now, keep in mind, here's the gospel. We don't obey him to get his acceptance and blessing. That's called religion. So if I get my act together, then maybe somehow God will accept me and love me. That's not the gospel. That's not Christianity. So I don't obey him to get his blessing. I have his blessing. I have his approval. I have his acceptance. I'm perfect in his eyes because of Jesus' perfect righteousness that has been attributed to my account. It's stunningly beautiful. It's overwhelming when you understand that. And so when you understand what you have in him, this relationship with him, then you want to obey him. You just love him. You want to bring glory to his name. So that's the gospel. So we don't obey him to get his blessing. We have his blessing by grace through faith in Christ. Therefore, we want to obey him. Now, God's laws are not arbitrary or random rules. God's laws reveal not only the character of God, but also the kind of character he wants us to have so that we can flourish in life. And so he knows what's in your best interest. I mean, that goes without saying. If he's God, he's the creator, he's the originator. He knows what's in our best interest. He's established the foundation. And so he knows what is in our best interest and he wants the very best for you. Listen to me. The God in heaven has your best interest at heart. He wants the very best for you. To think otherwise is to be duped by the adversary that goes all the way back to the garden thinking that you will be happier by disobeying him. Nothing could be further from the truth. That's insanity, by the way. It's obeying him is where your life is going to flourish. And, and so, therefore, because he has our best interest at heart, God has given us his word to believe and obey. And so, therefore, sin is a trampling on God's character and a dagger to his heart. Sin is thinking that we are smarter and more loving than God. 
so it's uh, to marry whoever you want is to disdain God's character. Here's the next one, to profane God's covenant. Each of these kind of in, increase with intensity. <clears throat> profane God's covenant. Verse 10b, he says, why then are we faithless to one another? profaning the covenant of our fathers. Did you hear that? Profaning the covenant of our fathers. So our covenant relationship with God determines the spouse we select. Look at verse uh, 1 Corinthians 7.39. It's up on the screen here. It will be up on the screen here. There we go. It's up on the screen now, okay. And so listen to what he says. A wife is bound to her husband. That word bound... It means covenant. There's a covenant relationship committed for life. And uh, a wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if uh, her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes. Notice the last phrase, only in the Lord, only in the Lord. So uh, a wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, by the way, you can't kill him, okay? That's, that's not what that means. What if we kill one another? Then you're free. No, you're not. You're going to jail, okay? And, uh, and so... Uh, Notice it says, only in the Lord. So you are a child of the true God. Don't marry someone who is a child of an untrue God. You want to make sure that you marry someone who is in covenant relationship with God that you are in covenant with, and and they are wanting to make a covenant with you. They understand what that means. Now, here's what I found interesting as I've helped a lot of couples work through these things, and I know that in our day and time, a lot of couples are just living together. There's a high percentage now more than ever are just living together. And when a person says, I love you, but let's not ruin it by getting married, that person really means, I don't love you enough to close off all of my options. I don't love you enough to give myself to you that thoroughly. That's what they're saying. To say I don't need a piece of paper to love you is basically to say my love for you has not reached the marriage level. So the next time you get pulled over and the police officer asks for your car registration and insurance and you don't have either one, just say to the police officer, it's just a piece of paper. (laughs) See how well that goes. Here's the next one. When you marry whoever you want to marry, you offend God's community, the church. And you see that in verse 10 and 11, verse 10c. Why then are we faithless to one another? Did you notice that? Why are we faithless to one another? Verse 11. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary. Sanctuary means the church. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord which he loves. So our being unequally yoked has an impact not only on our church community, but also on the community at large. Remember, the marriage, you know, because as the marriage goes, so goes the family, and as the family goes, so goes the church and society. 
I've talked to many spouses who were unequally yoked and their unbelieving spouse. I've seen this happen a lot. They forbid or they resent them from giving their time, talent, and treasure to God through their local church family. It creates major, major problems in that relationship. When they want to give but they can't because their unbelieving spouse forbids it or uh, just resents it. I think also, too, um, part of this idea of uh, as, it, as it opposes, it offends God's community is that we are to support and hold each other accountable. Hebrews 3, 12 through 13. So let me ask you this. Who do you have in your life that you can talk to about who you are dating? You need to have uh, your family members. You need to hang out and know your family members and have them give you input. But you also need to have church family members giving you input over that person. That's just, that's just really wise. I've seen this many times where a couple who is dating withdraws from all community input because they, maybe they know it's wrong or they just flat out don't want anybody interfering with it. They, they're, they're bound and determined to do what they want to do and nobody's going to interfere with that. And that's pride and it comes before a fall. You're setting yourself up for a lot of hurt and heartache. And... Um, so here's the next one. It contradicts your faith. Verse 11, Judah has been faithless. So they're doing something that goes against their faith. Faith is more than an agreement with facts in the head. It is also an appetite for God in the heart that exceeds all other appetites. So think about this. As a believer in Christ, your appetite for Christ should exceed all other appetites. That's Christianity that you are so happy in him that sin loses its appeal. You find such satisfaction in him. That's normal Christianity. And um, that you find him more desirable and more satisfying than anything in this world. There's no romance or amount of money or fame that even comes close to what you have in Christ. That's normal, healthy Christianity. And um, if your partner doesn't share your Christian faith, then he or she doesn't truly understand you and the wellspring of your life and the ground motive of all that you do. You see, in a normal, healthy Christian life, you relate Christ to everything in your life. And if you're married to an unbeliever, this could become annoying and offensive or could cause you to hide the most important thing in your life. Both of these outcomes are, are terrible. By the way, let me just also say to that, uh, no missionary dating, okay? No missionary dating allowed. What I mean by that, don't flirt to convert, okay? You guys know what I'm talking about? Don't use dating to evangelize. I've seen it go the other way where it actually pulls that person away from their faith in Christ. And there's better ways to evangelize. Don't use dating to do that. Here's the next one. Means to, when you marry whoever you want to marry, you make common what is sacred. Now we're going to get into some more specifics. We'll talk about sex here with this one. But notice what he says in verse 11. B, on a, he calls it an abomination has been committed 
in Israel and in Jerusalem, for Judah has profaned the sanctuary, the church or God's people, of the Lord, which he loves. Now, what is he saying? Why would he use such strong language? Abomination. That's an abomination. Well, that means this is extreme wickedness that repulses God. So to take something that is sacred like marriage or sex within the boundaries of marriage, to take that and uh, to take it lightly or to pervert it by redefining it or, or to use sex outside of the boundaries of a biblically defined marriage, that's to take something that is very sacred and make it profane. The word profane means common. So let me, uh, let me read this. Uh, let's read this verse together. It kind of helps us to understand this. And I'll talk a little bit more about what that looks like to make something sacred profane. 1 Corinthians 6, 15 through 20. You can see it up on the big screen. Um, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. That's why he says, verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. Flee from sexual immorality. Why would he say that? Well, sin fascinates and then it assassinates. It will take you out. He says, you need to run from that. And uh, every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. And what he means by that is it's not just physical. He's talking about your whole person. You sin against yourself as a person. He's saying sex outside of marriage is a sin against you and against the other person. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Now, the Bible doesn't counsel sexual abstinence before marriage because it has such a low view of sex, but because it has a very high view of sex. See, sex outside of marriage is like, like taking a million-dollar Van Gogh portrait out from the protection of the art gallery and putting it out on the sidewalk in front of the art gallery, letting anyone and everyone in the world touch it. It's taking something very sacred and making it very profane, common. That's what we have done with marriage and sex in our society. And that's why our society is, is, is a mess. And, um, and so I think it's important to keep in mind as we, as we work through this is that the, the biblical view, the biblical view implies that sex outside of marriage is not just morally wrong, but also personally and relationally harmful. It is it is commodifying sex and it is a form of prostitution. 
Sex outside of marriage is commodifying sex. It's a form of prostitution. Um, by the way, um, shows like Bachelor, Bachelorette, Temptation Island, all those hookup shows are really, really bad and uh, are filling your mind with per a perverted view of love and sexuality. They are taking something very sacred and making it profane. And I know a lot of, a lot of people just eating that up. I know even Christians, they just think, oh, this is, this is amazing, this is a great show. No, no, no. The Bible says, above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. It determines, the reason why you guard your heart, your mind, your emotions, your will, and the input that you have through TV, books you read, people you hang out with, whatever, is because it determines the direction of your life. That's shaping the direction of, of your life when you watch that kind of stuff. You fill your mind with that kind of stuff. And so... Sex within the boundaries of marriage, and keep in mind, here's the definition of sex within the boundaries of marriage, is it is a covenant renewal ceremony of whole life entrustment. So sex within the boundaries of marriage is a covenant renewal ceremony of whole life entrustment. So those of you that are married, husbands, next time you want to make love to your wife, just say it's time for our covenant renewal ceremony, honey, of whole life entrustment. Sounds so good, so sophisticated, doesn't it? <laughs> and she might say, again? <laughs> so... So sex within the boundaries of marriage is a covenant renewal ceremony of whole life entrustment. It is meant to say, listen to me, is meant to say, I belong completely and exclusively to you. We're gonna be taking communion this morning and communion is, is a covenant renewal ceremony of whole life entrustment to God. And so, here, let me, let me, kind of dive into this just a little bit more. So this is how it's supposed to be. Boy meets girl. The foundation of that relationship needs to be spiritual. It needs to be a spiritual connection. They're Christ, she's a Christian, he's a Christian. And the Bible uses the word for love here as agape love, unconditional love. So you're sharing agape love with one another. That becomes the foundation. And then you build on that foundation with the next level. So you go from spirit to soul, soul connection, which would be uh, the word phileo, which is uh, friendship. You become the best of friends. You become the best of friends. So spirit, soul, and then you make a covenant with this person. You get married, and on your wedding night, you have a covenant. It's establishing this covenant renewal ceremony of whole life entrustment because you've already established it spiritual, and then the next, that soul connection. And so uh, then it's the celebration of, of giving your body to your spouse. And the word there for love is eros. That's where we get our word erotic. And anytime you take the eros before you have established the other two, it undermines the other two. It undermines the other two, and it has an opposite effect. Rather than really building that up, it undermines it. And um, it's not great sex that makes for a great marriage. 
It's a great marriage. It's connecting spiritually and soul, agape phileo, that makes for great sex, body, eros. Um, I, I know this from spending a lot of time with uh, couples is that married couples who are no longer sleeping together are often, that problem is often due to there's a disconnect in their, uh, their spirit and soul. They're not friends and they might even despise one another and they, have to, they actually need to go back and reestablish that. And that's a telltale sign that there's something, something wrong but it's deeper than just the sex. It really has to do with how they're relating to one another. Sexual promiscuity causes a dissonance between spirit, soul, and body. Remember what he said, you sin against yourself, against your person, against your body. So sexual promiscuity causes a dissonance between spirit, soul, and body, losing its covenant-making power, working backwards, making you less able to commit and trust another person. I mean, think about it. You sleep around. You get to the person finally that you want to have a relationship with. You're not going to have that capacity to really connect at that deep level. You've already undermined that in your life. And you're going to have a real hard time trusting and giving of your life to that spouse. It's going to be really hard. It works against you. I've seen it. I've seen it over and over again. And so it works backwards. It undermines that. Listen to what Timothy Keller says from his book, The Meaning, the Meaning of Marriage. He says, the Bible says you must never commodify sex. You must never abstract sex from the whole person. In other words, you must never give someone your sexuality, your body, without giving them your whole self. And you must never receive someone's body unless you receive their whole self. You should never abstract sex from the person, therefore commodifying sex. What do you mean receive the whole person? Well, you need to be married. If you're not married, you're still in control of your life. You're not sharing control of your money or space or of yourself nor are you completely receiving the other person. You're getting the other person's sex, but you're, you're not sharing or getting all of their flaws and their needs and their problems. You haven't sworn to make them your responsibility. Sex outside of marriage is an exchange of products, not an exchange of selves. What you're saying is, I want the pleasure or the product, but I don't want you. It is sex as groceries, consumption, or a commodity. This is a consumer relationship where needs and rights are more important than the relationship and the product is more important than the person. Here's something else to think about. I've noticed this, that when you fall in love, I believe you lose half of your brains. When falling in love involves falling into bed, I believe you lose the other half of your brains. In all objective, you know, reality, you know, objective, all objectivity is thrown to the wind. And it makes breaking up harder than it should be, and it keeps many, many people trapped in unhealthy relationships. 
I heard a guy say this, getting married for sex is like buying a 747 for the peanuts. It's like, there's much more to the marriage relationship than that. And there better be, because that's what makes for a good, healthy marriage relationship. So to marry whoever you want is to disdain God's character, profane God's covenant, offend God's community, uh, con- uh, contradict your faith, and, and make common what is sacred. Now we've got to get into this. What should you look for in a spouse? What should you look for? And I first of all, I want to just give you some thoughts on uh, singleness and marriage. You can see this on your notes. And I want, you to, I want you to know this. I want you to hear this. Both singleness and marriage are both gifts from God. So if you're single, that's a gift from God. If you're married, that's a gift from God. And uh, we live in a culture today that, uh, and I grew up in a traditional culture. Traditional cultures tend to make an idol out of marriage. And if you're single, there's something wrong with you. That is wrong. That is absolutely wrong. And the idea is that you are a nobody until somebody loves you and you're having babies. That's not biblical. The modern culture has become so cynical about marriage that they have made an idol out of independence. They don't want to, I don't want to be tied down. I want to keep my options open. What's interesting is that Paul doesn't do that in 1 Corinthians 7, 27 through 31. I'd encourage you to read that on your own. And what he does, he really gives a balance. And he basically is saying that, that both singleness is a gift and marriage is a gift. And and in essence, what he's saying here is don't over-desire or under-desire marriage. Don't be overly elated by getting married or overly disappointed if you don't get married. Don't make good things into ultimate things. Remember what we talked about? So when you have a good thing, you're going to have sorrow. But if that good thing has become an ultimate thing, when you lose that, it's not just going to be sorrow. It's going to be despair, You're trying to get from that, that relationship, what you should be getting from God. I did that for many years in my marriage relationship and almost destroyed it because of that. If you don't develop a a deeply fulfilling relationship with Jesus Christ, you will either be poorly married or poorly single. Lonely, insecure, single people will become lonely, insecure, married people. Human romance is a glorious experience, but even the best is a gift from God and a pointer to the ultimate experience of oneness, closure, and fulfillment we have in God. So whatever you've experienced in the romance category, horizontally, it's nothing compared to what you can experience in God vertically. That's just a dim glimpse, what we have in, in Christ And uh, listen to what uh, Sam Alberry says. The most fully human, complete, and fulfilled person who ever lived was Jesus Christ. He never married and, and was never in a romantic relationship and never had sex. If you say these things are intrinsic to human fulfillment, then you are making our Savior subhuman. Our primary sense of worth and fulfillment as a human being is not contingent on being romantically or sexually fulfilled, and that is liberating. Let's talk about dating, thoughts on dating. Our dating practices today have more to do with the advent of the automobile than they do with scriptures. Uh, In the first part of the 20th century, 
you'd hop in your car, go pick up your date, and go off into some secluded place, uh, maybe end up in the back seat of the automobile. And, uh, but in the 19th century, you would begin to court a girl in front of her parents and family on the front porch and, uh, and taking walks within the view of the family or going on picnics with the family only with the intention of marriage. So here's what it is. Dating is for marriage. You shouldn't be dating if you don't plan on getting married within a year or two. With the intention of getting married, you should date long, at least a year, with a short engagement. That's why I say short, your engagement should just be a few months because it's too tempting. I've seen a lot of couples fall to that. I've seen them have their engagement a year out or a year and a half out. I'm thinking, what are you, insane? You're not thinking. That's too tempting. You guys, you're not going to be able to stay apart. So it's just, it's wise counsel. And um, prior to maritable age, kids should be group dating and learn to relate to groups as friends. I mean, after all, a marriage is a friendship and they'll be the best spouse when they learn honest, non-sexual friendships with the opposite gender. A lot of guys and some girls don't know how to relate to the opposite gender unless they are moving on them sexually. There's a lot of that in our culture today. If you came to me years ago and said you wanted to romance my daughter without the intention of marriage, in other words, wanting to tease her romantic affections without any movement toward the possibility of a covenant relationship and no accountability, I would say, that's outrageous. You're not going to do that. That's crazy. That's a setup for failure. So parents, you should be talking to your kids about who and why they are dating and who they will marry. And that needs to be talked about primarily, especially in the teenage years. Because that's where they're headed. They're headed in that direction. So you need to really have some good boundaries, real good healthy discussions on that. And by the way, we're not talking about escorting someone to an event. That's totally different. You can do that without dating someone. So you got to make that distinction here. And uh, so, so dating is often motivated by our felt needs rather than the presence of Christ and the real needs of our date. So healthy marriages involve practicing the presence of Christ and serving your spouse and not your sexual appetite. And that begins in dating. And in fact, let me just say this, that... Uh, you can usually tell within three to six months if the relationship is going anywhere. I mean, I was able to tell with, I didn't do a lot of dating, but uh, I could tell within the first date sometimes. It's like, whoop, this isn't going to work. Where can I drop you off? <laughs> I mean, you, you immediately sometimes know. You guys know what I'm talking about. You're just like, oh, boy. It's like, yeah, this isn't going to work. We're going to be killing each other. Yeah, it's just, it's interesting. And so within three to six months, you can tell if the relationship is going anywhere. If it's not, end the dating relationship. Stop leading the other person on. It is emotionally and relationally abusive and very self-serving to continue to date someone without the intention of getting married. 
What should you look for in a spouse? Look for compatibility. That's what you need, is you need compatibility. What that means is that you have a lot of things in common. The more things you have in common, the less conflict you'll have. So you're looking for compatibility. And by the way, this is also a list to show what married couples should be working on. These are the areas of compatibility we should be working on in our married relationship. We'll talk more about it next week. But here's the first one, physical compatibility. Is this person, is, is this someone you are attracted to inside and out? Inside and out. How many have ever noticed this, that, uh, that some people that are very, very attractive, maybe you're attracted to them, but, but the more you get to know them, the less attractive they become to you? You ever notice that? Isn't that interesting? Or, or it works the opposite, too. Someone that might not be very attractive to you, but the more you get to know them, you're just like, oh, my goodness, they're gorgeous. What's, what's happening there? It's, it's what's going on in the inside of them. Their character is just radiating are not radiating through their life. It makes all the difference in the world. So is this someone you are attracted to inside and out? My dad's advice to me on choosing a spouse was this. It sounds a little crude and it took me a bit to kind of understand it, but he says this, girls with superficial beauty don't usually make very good wives or moms for your kids. In other words, look for someone whose beauty doesn't decrease but increase with time. Whether you realize it or not, everyone here, your beauty is, is decreasing <laughs> with time. That usually happens when you hit about 33, okay? It's all downhill from there. So if you're, if you're heading up to 33, maybe you are looking more beautiful every day. I think, hey, that's wonderful. That's good, but just wait. Wait until you hit 33 or 40, and then you go, ooh. I, I, not too long ago, I, 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 we crossed paths with someone I hadn't seen for a while, and I, told, I was telling my wife, I go, man, they are looking old. And then she kind of looked at me like, yeah, you are too. <laughs> that hurt. Yeah, and I, all I got to do is take one look in the mirror and go, ooh, yeah, I do too. I don't even look anything like I used to look. And so that's part of it. So, uh, so look for someone whose beauty doesn't decrease but increases with time. Before marriage, you, you've got to think she is beautiful. After marriage, she becomes your standard of beauty. My wife is my standard of beauty. And uh, here's the next one, psychological Psychological compatibility. Have they dealt with past sins and past hurts? Have they been open about their past sins and past hurts? Otherwise, if they haven't, they're carrying a lot of baggage. They're going to bring it into the marriage relationship. How her father treated her has a lot to do with how she relates to men. How his mother treated him has a lot to do with how he relates to women. How father and mother relate to each other has a lot to do with how their children will view marriage and relationships. And what you have to do, you have to be very objective here. You've got to look back in your past and say, you've got to be able to say, is that healthy or was that unhealthy? What was going on? What did my parents pass on to me? You know, yeah, there might have been some really healthy parts of that, but then there was other parts that were very unhealthy. And if you don't deal with those unhealthy parts, you tend to repeat those in the next relationships. It's called the homing instinct. We tend to always go back to that which is most familiar to us, even if it is dysfunctional. 
Even if it's dysfunctional, broken homes produce broken people who reproduce broken homes and broken relationships. So you've got to be able to recognize that. By the way, that's why we have the Bible. The Bible gives us a standard for what it looks like to have healthy relationships. And so you go back to the standard of God's word and you know what a healthy uh, home life and a healthy relationship looks like. So use that as the, as the plumb line. And, and then allow Christ to redeem your life and restore your life so that you don't repeat that uh, in your life. Marriage, marriages struggle when you have two psychologically immature people trying to work things out. Here's the next one, intellectual. Intellectual compatibility. Is this someone who you have deep conversation with, someone whose mind you are interested in. Now, I understand when you are young and your hormones are raging, you're probably not going to be thinking about her mind, okay? But you should. You should. Older men should ask younger men, hey, what do you guys talk about when you go on your dates? What's going on there? Does this relationship have the potential for a lifelong friendship? See, friends enjoy deep conversation in each other's company. I love that about my wife and I. We have that. I mean, we love, we love hanging out with each other. And I'll ask her some really hard theological questions. And, oh, baby, does she have some really good answers. I, I love her mind and how she thinks and what God has done in her, in her life. Here's the next one is social, social compatibility. Do you enjoy the same types of people? Does she want to hang out with the same crowd of people that you want to hang out with? Does he or she have good social skills? Do they have good communication and conflict resolution skills? How, how do they manage stress or get along with difficult people? It's really important to see that. Who are his or her friends? Who do they hang out with? We become like the people we hang out with. Evil company corrupts good morals. The next one is occupational. Occupational compatibility. Will your career choices complement or conflict with each other? Now, Nancy and I agreed before marriage that I would do all I could to provide for the family so that if we are blessed with children, she would be a stay-at-home mom and wife. And that's what she did up to a point we, we, until we sent our kids to a private school. It was expensive. I was on staff here. And so she needed to go back to work for a season to, to help make ends meet. I also told her that being involved in ministry and a part of a local church was a passion and priority for me for the rest of my life. And I said, are you good with that? She said, I'm in, I do. And uh, she's been by my side ever since. And that was important, that was a discussion that happened before marriage. And, um, Recreational, do you enjoy the same kind of recreation and vacations? A guy with a great marriage was asked, what's the secret of your marriage? And he said, a nice walk by the moonlight, stopping by a favorite restaurant, having a great meal and dessert, and then walking home. I do it Fridays, and she does it on Saturdays. So recreational, do you enjoy hanging out with each other? My wife is my drinking buddy. We go coffee shop hopping, okay? 
And when we go on vacations, we look for all the local coffee shops. We, we just, we love that and love hanging out and we exercise together and we do all kinds of stuff together. And so recreational. Now, uh, here's the most important compatibility is, is spiritual. And this is what you need to know. This is the most important. Do they have a solid trust in Jesus Christ? Do you see the fruit of the Holy Spirit in their life? Do they embrace the essentials of the Christian faith? Remember, we went through a whole series with doctrine. Do they believe in the deity of Christ, original sin, canon of scripture, trinity, resurrection, incarnation, new birth, being born again, and then the second coming of Christ? Do they believe that? What are their basic ethical convictions? Are they wanting to climb the social ladder or help the poor? What's their view of race relations? Do they have a biblical worldview? Do they just have a said faith or is it a real faith? What are their Christ-centered ambitions? What do they want out of life? Do they have an active commitment? This is important. Do they have an active commitment to a local church family where they are involved giving their time, their talent, and their treasure? We could say more. Let me answer this question. What do I do if I'm already married to an unbeliever? What do I do? Well, if you're married, if you married him or her and you were a believer and they were an unbeliever, you need to confess and repent of your sin and love your spouse and make it a great marriage as much as you can by God's grace and teach the young people how they can avoid the mistakes you've made. Now, if you married as unbelievers, and now only you have become a believer. Paul addresses this in 1 Corinthians. He's actually addressing both of these scenarios. But 1 Corinthians 7, he says, don't divorce because your union can make your unbelieving spouse holy. In other words, you can, you can have a sanctifying impact on his or her life. And so, so love your spouse and make it a great marriage as much as you can by God's grace. And I'm going to read something here from, and I think this kind of summarizes it and kind of sets us up for next week. But uh, this is from Timothy and Kathy Keller, The Meaning of Marriage. Here's, here's the big idea, part of what we're, what we're talking about here. Within the Christian vision of marriage, here's what it means to fall in love. It is to look at another person and get a glimpse of the person God is creating and to say, I see who God is making you, and it excites me. I want to be part of that. I want to partner with you and God in the journey you are taking to his throne. And when we get there, I will look at your magnificence and say, I always, I always knew you could be like this. I got glimpses of it on earth, but now look at you. In looking for a spouse, don't look for a finished statue, but for a wonderful block of marble. Not so you can create the kind of person you want, but rather because you see what kind of person Jesus is making. If you don't see your mate's deep flaws and weaknesses and dependencies, you're not even in the game. But if you don't get excited about the person, uh, about the person your spouse has already grown into and will become, you aren't tapping into the power of marriage as spiritual friendship. There's a lot there. Oh God, help us. We need his help and we need his grace. Let's pray. Let's prepare our hearts for communion this morning.
So Father God, we, we thank you for the gift of singleness and the gift of marriage. And whether we are single or married, may we develop a deeply fulfilling relationship with Christ Jesus. And may our attitude and actions about singleness, dating, sex, and marriage reflect your word rather than this lost and fallen world. Help us to see that you always, you always have our best interest at heart and your laws come from from your perfect love and infinite wisdom. We are very grateful that you don't convict us to shame us, but to save us and to satisfy us and no sin or suffering is a match for your redeeming and restoring grace. So we give you our sin and our suffering and ask that you would redeem us and restore us by grace through, through faith in Christ Jesus. We pray these things in Jesus' beautiful name. Amen.